This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hello, Candace. Hey there, Katie. I have to tell all of you, Katie is so nice and tan from a weekend in Dustin. And I was just remarking that I could also use a vacation. And in the summertime, I love going to Washington, D.C. I don't think there's anything more fun than being in that part of the country, especially around the 4th of July. And the last time I was in D.C., I visited a site that I hadn't before. And I wouldn't exactly call it off the beaten path because it's not. It's off the George Washington Memorial Parkway. But if you've never been to Teddy Roosevelt Island, you've got to go. It's this wonderful monument to his conservationist ideals. And there's a swamp and forest and a boardwalk. And best of all, I can take Jupiter because pets are allowed. And I mean, what more could a girl ask for? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. And the greatest thing about Teddy Roosevelt, I think, is that he was so forward thinking. And in a time when industry was king and loggers and miners and many other industry men abounded, he had the foresight to plan for our country's natural resources to be protected and saved. And that brings me to the question, was Teddy Roosevelt our first real green president? I've heard of some other candidates, actually, for green presidents. I was talking to our green editor, Sarah Dowdy, before this podcast, and she was saying that Nixon was actually responsible for the Environmental Protection Agency and for the Clean Air Act, but we don't think of someone like Richard Nixon as being particularly green. Well, I think that the word green has such a a modern and contemporary resonance. How long ago did we really start throwing the word around? Well, exactly. And I think the meaning of being green has changed throughout the decades. Like right now, you're thinking global warming. Right. Precisely. And I think when you, when you hear the word green, you also think of sort of a, a touchy feely person, someone who's in touch with the people, someone who's really making an effort to care about the earth and present a, a good image of, of stewardship to the people. And maybe that's why Nixon comes as such a surprise because that's not exactly the legacy that he left behind. But a few other candidates whose names have come up are people like Jimmy Carter, who helped to found the Department of Energy back in 1977, 
Thomas Jefferson, who <laughs> had ideas of an agrarian paradise taking hold in the United States with everyone farming and doing their part to help cultivate the land. Um, and of course, not to mention that Jefferson negotiated the Louisiana Purchase to add that much more land to no the United gushing. States. I'll stop now. Get off my, my Jefferson uh, soapbox. FDR, who set up the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a major contributor to helping uh, bolster awareness of different tracts of wilderness and also to cultivate the land too. And even Lincoln, who created the United States Department of Agriculture. And I have to give credit to these rankings and to these accomplishments to the Daily Green and Treehugger, as well as MSN, who developed lists of the greenest presidents. And on the Daily Green, Teddy Roosevelt ranked number one. And on the MSN list, he was number five. But if you're going to, I guess, quantify someone's greenness, you have to really look at his accomplishments as a president. And Teddy Roosevelt has a whole list of things that he accomplished. Starting with 150 national forests, 51 bird reservations, four national game preserves, five national parks, 18 national monuments. The list just goes on and on. And according to the Teddy Roosevelt Association, he expanded forest reserves by 400%. I mean, if it weren't for Teddy Roosevelt, we would not have the Grand Canyon as it is, would we not? Truly, we really wouldn't. And that's another facet to his ideals of conservationism, the idea that the United States, being a new country, doesn't have that sort of rich cultural heritage and types of monuments that places like Europe do. You know, what we have to offer, you know, to show ourselves to the world are these beautiful tracks of wilderness and interesting and unique formations in the earth itself. And we need to be proud of that. And that's why we need to preserve landmarks like the Grand Canyon. Well, exactly. We don't have the Coliseum, but we do have Yosemite, so beat that. Exactly. So we've listed a bunch of his accomplishments, but I think that to really prove how green he is, since that onus is on us, since we posited that he's the greenest guy around, or at least the first green president, we should delve into his history and his career. He came into the White House back in 1901, and he was there until 1909, and he was only 43 years old when he assumed the presidency of the United States. And he leveraged the Antiquities Act of 1906 in order to protect different sites around the country, as well as give future presidents the uh, the license to declare different areas that could be considered of scientific or historic interest as national monuments. And... One example of how he exercised the Antiquities Act was when he declared the Petrified Forests in Arizona a national monument. He was pretty captivated with Arizona in general, I think. Well, he was really fascinated by the West. And an important thing to note is that while he was born to a wealthy family on the East Coast, there were a couple of events that happened in his life that inspired him to go West. Back in the 1880s, actually, was when he headed out there. And this was around the time that his mother and his first wife had died. Tragedy really struck him on a personal note. He'd been reading in New York Magazine about Howard Eaton's Custer Trail Ranch in the Dakota Badlands. And he was fascinated by the idea of really getting in touch with his masculine side, which is something we'll bring up again later, and hunting and fishing and riding horses. So he went out west and he actually took down an outlaw while he was out there, in addition to the uh, the hunting and fishing aspect of, of being in the Wild West. And he became the owner of the Maltese Cross Ranch. And 
he wrote home and encouraged his fellow Easterners to come out west and see what it had to offer. And dude ranches really became popular by virtue of Teddy Roosevelt and his, his inspirational actions in drawing people out to this type of lifestyle. And if you're wondering about the word dude, sort of a funny term, uh, in New York, it was used to reference a city slicker, someone who was really well-groomed and put together, roughing it in the conditions of the West. Was he actually a good rancher? I don't know if he was a good rancher. Maybe one of our, our listeners can weigh in via email or on the blog. But something he was very good at was establishing reverence toward nature. And he did some sort of contradictory things to the idea of being a good steward of nature, which you were asking me about earlier and really put me in a tough spot to answer. He was big into hunting, wasn't he? And when you think of someone being green, you normally think, you know, a little touchy-feely. You don't picture them going out and shooting grizzly bears. Especially since he lived his life by the uh, understanding that stuff runs out, to put it crudely. He was very much into conservationism, and he knew that stuff ran out. So why would he go and, and hunt big game with such wild abandon. Well, and I think part of it, he actually went to go hunt bison and there were no bison to hunt because that particular stock of animal had in fact been exhausted in that part of the country. And this is a topic on which he, he clashed with one of his most influential sources, as you were mentioning. Oh, John Moore. Yes. Who was one of the co-founders of the Sierra Club. And he took a life-changing trip to Yosemite and the Grand Canyon um, in the West with John Moore. And they, I think, bickered quite a bit, actually, about that, because Teddy was concerned with things like sustainable forestry, whereas John Moore was saying that, no, we shouldn't be cutting down the trees, period. We should be preserving what we have. And Teddy would have butted heads on that point and would have defined sustainable forestry by explaining that you can use the land in a democratic way or you can use it in a very privatized way. And he foresaw using the land for all strata of society. And until then, many people conceived of the wealthy classes being able to use the land as freely as they wanted for recreation and for hunting. And he wanted to make it available for everyone. And in reference to his his hunting with wild abandon, I wanted to refer to Daniel Filler who wrote an essay called Theodore Roosevelt, Conservation is the Guardian of Democracy. And he explains that Roosevelt equated land and natural resources with economic and political success. And again, we'll, we'll broach the idea of conservationism as the key to the country's future in just a minute. But something that Filler posed that was so interesting to me was the idea of hunting is a way to create a, a code of ethics toward nature. And Roosevelt based this idea on the type of um, aristocratic hunting traditions that were very much alive in Europe. They established a type of manliness. They made a, a man very virile and and hardy and full of life. The fact that he could go out there and, and hunt with abandon, yes, but also with restraint. You know, you, you hunt for, for the... Um, I guess the, the joy and satisfaction of taking down an animal, you assert your manliness on the land. And he saw in the United States that as urbanization was growing, America was becoming very emasculated in a sense. He was very worried that men would, would lose the ideals on which the country was founded. And he saw this emasculation of man as the death of democracy. 
Well, and being a Rough Rider cowboy type of guy, I don't think he was very fond of that particular deterioration. Exactly. That's an excellent point, drawing another aspect of his career there. He was very much ahead of his time with some of the ideas that he uh, he advocated. In 1908, he said, Our position in the world has been attained by the extent and thoroughness of the control we have achieved over nature, but we are more and not less dependent upon what she, America, furnishes than at any previous time of history. And what do you think that means? Well, like I was explaining earlier, equating land and natural resources with economic and political success, Roosevelt saw the abundance of America, the timber and the mines and, dare I say, the, the clean air and the abundance of, of birds and wildlife as America's key to success on the global stage. We have an abundance, and that's what would guarantee our success among other countries with other resources at their disposal. But perhaps too many Americans at this time were, were using them carelessly, and he wanted to preserve them for future generations. And he even said in 1907 in his seventh annual message to Congress that there's no such thing as an inexhaustible resource. And I quote Teddy, optimism is a good characteristic, but if carried to an excess, it becomes foolishness. We are prone to speak of the resources of this country as inexhaustible. This is not so. He has some great quotes on conservation. I was reading another one where he goes specifically through everything and what will happen when we run out of the forest, when the coal's gone, the iron's gone, the oil's gone, the gas is gone, and that it's time to start thinking about these things. And the fact that he was posing these ideas in a time when it was incredibly unpopular to talk about tapering off one's use of the land, I think is what really asserts his place as, as the nation's first and, if not, greenest president. Well, and very much a progressive, along with the other ideals of his party. Definitely. And, of course, we remain to see what our current president and future presidents here on out do to exemplify greenness in the White House. And we are positive that many of you are, are itching with things to uh, to say about Teddy Roosevelt and other presidents who you might think are even greener. So we invite you to email us at History podcast at howstuffworks.com and to comment on our blog. And we very much look forward to having a, a good green debate with you. And for more on Teddy Roosevelt and other green ideas and conservationist principles, be sure to visit the website at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. We are going to Italy after the success of last year's trip to Paris. We are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself 
an athlete, mostly because of his unreal Papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks. We all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow, get a grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.